This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Jason Richardson. Jason is the current CEO of Gastroenterology of the Rockies. This is a specialty uh, GI uh, physician group uh, based uh, right outside of Boulder, Colorado, and he has just had a really fascinating career. Started out as a physical therapist, uh, wanting to be the best uh, manual uh, orthopedic therapist that he could possibly be, and uh, just kind of rolled into management positions and, and finally ended up taking a position with Results Physiotherapy based out of Nashville, Tennessee. He built that practice from six clinics to 76 clinics, and then private equity money came in, and we talk a little bit about that in the interview, which I think is really interesting. Then he left there and became the vice president of operations at Concentra in the Colorado region, and eventually into his current position. It's interesting that his journey took him to places that he could never even imagined when he first came out of physical therapy school, which is, uh, I think, a common feeling. So just by uh, reaching out and and continuing to learn and grow and and taking uh, advantage of opportunities, he ends up in a a pretty nice CEO position um, now uh, with the physician group. Jason has three kids, all uh, reaching that uh, teenage year, so his hands are full with that as well. He's an avid mountain biker, loves to mountain bike in, um, in the Rockies, and uh, is kind of living the dream. So it's just uh, great to talk to Jason. So without uh, further ado, let's jump into the interview. Jason, welcome to the program. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Me too. So fill us in a little bit. Now, uh, you are a physical therapist and started as a staff physical therapist like we all did and and have had quite a journey with a lot of different roles leading to leadership roles. And now you're in the CEO role of um, gastroenterology uh, specialty medical practice, which is different. So uh, why don't you just kind of start by saying how you got started in the PT world and then how you ended up in the position you're in now. My career, I, I started off, I, I knew I wanted to go into physical therapy profession. I, I knew I wanted to kind of focus on orthopedics um, and then had a, had a strong interest even going into grad school in manual therapy. And uh, looking back at my journey, there was really, I had no instincts, no intent of going into uh, business and management and executive leadership. Uh, I just put my head down and, one, wanted to get into PT school, and, two, uh, be the best orthopedic manual therapist that I could. And uh, like many of many of us, uh, you, you do that, you're excited about it, and as you get into private practice and you start solving the day-to-day uh, strategic problems and operational problems, uh, legislative and payer problems—you kind of get sucked into a different, uh, a different track. And that's that's very that's kind of how I made the pivot from the clinical world and PT private practice to uh, an executive leadership with a physician practice. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been quite fun, and and honestly, it was never anything that I planned to do. I, I had thought coming out of school, I was uh, going to keep my head down and serve serve my patients. Yeah, um, it's a it's a similar tract of mine. I mean, I just uh, I felt the same way, and it's just kind of interesting to 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 hear that that you went along that way as well. So you uh, you had a chance to uh, you started out with um, in results physiotherapy with with, uh, I believe, just six locations, and then you grew that to 76 locations. So tell us about how you got into that role and what was the growth strategy with your practice at that point. Yeah, crazy. Um, so I ended up joining uh, Results Physiotherapy, and that this was, a looking back, an amazing opportunity. 
Um, I left a physician-owned practice in Lexington, Kentucky. It was a prominent kind of shoulder orthopedic group and uh, later joined Results. And the Results was uh, a small private practice based out of Nashville, Tennessee. And it was primarily uh, some Australian physiotherapists who moved from Australia and they came to Nashville and started a practice. Um, and what, what drew me to the practice was uh, their manual therapy approach, which was a strong clinical interest of mine at the time. And uh, this practice had a really good reputation for uh, managing pain and uh, orthopedic injuries. And so I joined them and uh, really learned from, from their clinical focus, which was largely a Maitland approach and uh, grew from there and uh, learned how to kind of build my own list. And it was very much kind of a eat what you treat mentality. And so I quickly learned to adapt into that, into that role. And uh, as payer pressure started coming about in Nashville and the proliferation of physician-owned practices keeping, uh, you know, referrals within within their own practices. Uh, it forced us to have to adapt, and uh, I found found myself uh, being tapped on the shoulder to take on more and more roles, um, developing different strategies around uh, attracting uh, patients and referrals to our practice, and. Um, bringing on new talent so we could grow and it just kind of kept proliferating that way um and the, i think really some of the pivotal things was i really enjoyed bringing on talent and young young pts that had an appetite to join a manual orthopedic practice and kind of pouring into them and watching them grow and and it just kept going and what's interesting is uh, our practice was based in Nashville, Tennessee. We were the home of physiotherapy associates and um, uh, some, some of the most integrated orthopedic clinics uh, in the state. Uh, and so we had to learn to adapt and change directions. And uh, one of our biggest strategic directions, this was not like, this was almost by accident, almost by, uh, we had to pivot to survive. We stopped focusing on uh, getting uh, our referrals from orthopedic surgeons and really focused on primary care and how could we uh, make our private physical therapy practice an adjunct or a, 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 a extension of our PCP partners. And that happened to be really the differentiator uh, in, uh, for our clinic to be able to grow and to prosper and to move from six locations to, you know, uh, 70 plus. So you're in this operational role now um, uh, with the uh, results and you're growing from six to eventually 76 and you, I believe you brought in some private equity money. So at what point did you do that and why was that decision made? You know, um, early on, that was never, uh, never really a, a direction we were wanting to go. Uh, I think uh, early on, um, myself and our leadership team, we kind of grew um, because we wanted to create opportunities for the talent we were bringing in. And we were pouring into these young therapists and developing them and inspiring them to come along with us. We kept growing and most of our growth was de novo. You know, we weren't acquiring practices. We, we were putting these clinics uh, into new communities and opening them up from scratch. Um, and I think as we kept getting bigger and bigger, it became apparent to our executive team that perhaps we could take this clinical product and uh, clinical approach and, 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 you know, bring it to communities across the United States. And so it, be, it, be, it began to be some conversations, mainly from the primary founders, um, that, that we should consider this and our executive team was brought into it, and we we spent nearly a year vetting uh, kind of a short list of PE partners, and we ended up taking taking that road in 2014. 
Um, and it was, it was an interesting time. And, uh, but that's, that's how it came about. Um, I'd say it was probably a good 24 to 28 months that we considered it before the time we started considering that option. And when we, um, made the decision and found a partner. And what, uh, so how many clinics, uh, did you have at the time you brought the private equity money in then? We had, it was 70, it was between 76 and 81 was about, that's about the time. But by the time we got to where we were entertaining private equity, we had pretty much engineered a, a process of bringing multiple de novo clinics on, onto our platform. We were bringing on 30 something de novo clinics at the time. So we were somewhere between that, uh, that, that, um, 80, 76 and 81 yeah. is what I recall. That's amazing growth. With uh, So before the private equity money, you were growing uh, 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 very fast and, and getting bigger quickly. So, uh, yeah. and, and you said that you had, you were providing opportunities for new professionals coming in that wanted to be in that director role and grow with the company. And so there was a lot of opportunity to open new clinics. Yeah, and that, that was, that's a, you know, Funny thing is, is that looking back, we had our entire operational infrastructure was clinicians. They were all PTs, and none of them were formally trained, but they came in with uh, with an appetite. They bought into our vision um, of PT, and we poured into them. We asked more of them, I think, in a lot of uh, in a lot of respects. And that, but I think that was a critical differentiator in those, in those days, uh, for our success. Yeah, that's great. So now you bring in, uh, and the reason I'm asking this question, because so many practices when they get to this size are, are faced with this. So, uh, you bring in some private equity money. What's the goal of private equity money, uh, at, at this point in, in the company? And then, uh, what was your experience once that was brought in? How did it change? Give me the pros and cons of, of going that route. Yeah, great question. Uh, I have to tell you, I was enthusiastic. I was interested. I think you're somewhat uh, enamored by the fact that, you know, what you bled into and what you created um, uh, was a, brought it some attraction. For, for some of the big players. And I can tell you, as we were vetting PE firms and uh, sharing our financials and sharing all of our, our data, <clears throat> it, it, it really gave you a sense of pride that you were even being considered by these folks. And, that, and these PE firms have resources like you can't imagine, yeah, financial, um, business, uh, political. And so, uh, as we took on that partner, we tried to take on the partner that we felt best um, aligned with our values at Results Physiotherapy. And, and I, I and our executive team really didn't have um, a large majority ownership in the practice. Um, so the founders were really driving this, and they, they wanted to take some chips off the table relative to their investment. Um, but they also wanted to give us the resources that we needed beyond what we have collectively done to that point to continue to grow at, at that pace. And so that was what, what we did is, is we brought on a, a private equity group that we felt aligned with our values that was going to allow us to continue to do what we did well. Um, and but give us the financial and the business and the and the uh, marketing intelligence to continue to grow uh, through a de novo and a acquisition strategy. And so once we did that, I think the pros were you, you definitely sharpened your blade relative to operational analytics, financial analytics, um, and just brought a level of discipline and science that we hadn't seen before. Um, there were also doors opened to us around uh, around payer executives and payer leaderships from across the region and across the country that we could then tap into for questions and intelligence and insights, which was which was gold. <clears throat> and those were all the positives. And I really have always been curious. I just love to understand how things work. I, I just, uh, 
level uh, things that you don't know or you know a little bit about you want to get a greater depth so that kind of intel and that kind of uh, uh, data and, and insights was extraordinarily um, stimulating to me and um, but the but I'd say the bad is is that they have a greater influence um, on your strategic direction and um, and, and oftentimes, some of the things that made you unique and made results unique were, were suddenly less valuable, or not, not so much less valuable, but they were just changing. And um, and and I'd say that uh, in some ways, the, the direction that our partners wanted to take us eventually led to my being less enthusiastic about being on that train. And how long did you stay with the company after you uh, took in the private equity partner? I stayed. I stayed for about eighteen more months. And it was just that the focus changed, and you uh, just felt that uh, you were headed. You wanted to head in one direction; they wanted to head in the, uh, the other. Is that why you decided yeah. to leave? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so bizarre how um, I'd say I'd, I came in to the private e equity transition, very enthusiastic. But then over time, uh, I just lost the the love. I, I just, it changed and I wasn't waking up, springing out of bed like I did for 16 years prior. Um, I don't know if it was boredom. I don't know if it was just a different direction, um, but that's just not the way I wanted to live. And um, my wonderful bride said, ah, Let's do something different. And so I negotiated an exit, sold my shares, and moved the family to Colorado. And that's what we did. Oh, that's great. So how would you describe your leadership style? That's, you know, it's funny. Uh, and I don't know if you're the same way, but you, I really don't know if I could have defined my leadership style 16 years ago. But I think as you reflect and you get – more uh, uh, more touches, more experience under your belt. I think I would describe my leadership style um, uh, kind of foundational around my personal values. And so my framework for uh, making decisions and, um, uh, in, and leading comes around my personal values. And my personal values are responsibility, integrity, curiosity, and then I'd have to say serving others. And so when I look at trying to define my leadership style, I'm looking at kind of those four pillars. And so I really value uh, in my mentors and my leadership, those folks that would inspire me, those that would give me a vision and could articulate a vision of what we can be and where we're going. Um, I, I really valued the leaders and my mentors who gave me uh, a leash, a, a long, long slack in the leash, and empowered me to run with my ideas. And I think that that's also something that I would describe in, in my leadership style uh, is bring good people on that understand where you want to go and then empower them. Give them the tools they need to succeed and let them let them run. I think that drives some innovation and uh, it, it builds operational workflows and directions that you probably couldn't foresee. And then the third thing that I think is extraordinarily important and is also part of my leadership style is, is holding people accountable. So um, I think if you inspire people to execute and, and articulate a vision that everyone can get behind um, uh, with uh, an emotional tie to the vision, empower them to execute, give them what they they need to execute, um, and then hold the team accountable, accountable to results, accountable to timelines. To me, that's my philosophy because then it's not just you and it's not just the the, the collective energies of two or three people. You're 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 harnessing the uh, collective energies of the team. And whether we're talking about uh, directors or line managers or um, the janitors, it, it, if you can get every single one of those people to 
to kind of value and instill those those uh, uh, philosophies. It just it just takes on a momentum of its own. Yeah, that's for sure. So where is Results Physiotherapy now? Are they still um, going strong? Are they still growing, or have they changed? Uh, they, you know, they're they're doing well as far as I know. I know they they've had some um, leadership changes and some board changes. But I'll tell you what, there's some some great people over there, some people I uh, love personally and professionally, um, and they are still growing. Um, even though they've they've weathered some some change, uh, they are, I think, back on track and doing really well. Yeah, that's great. And uh, what, what advice would you give to maybe some people that are listening to this program that are trying to decide what the next step is and they look at, uh, you know, uh, finding a partner, uh, having gone through it, what advice would you give those people? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a personal decision. I think that you have to understand where you are. You need to understand who you are. And then you need to understand where you want to go. I think that there's, uh, uh, I think there's a place for private equity. Um, I have mixed uh, feelings about private equity and healthcare, um, but I think for your listeners that are considering their next options, I think you just really got to do a deep dive into what values does your organization hold. Um, can you get there on the trajectory you're on now? Um, and consider if you can't, maybe there's an opportunity in a in a um, uh, a reasonable option to 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 go into a private equity scenario, but I, I I just would stress that you need to know yourself and know where you want to go. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if that's okay. And you sure. mentioned uh, that you have uh, you maybe take a little pause with private equity in healthcare. What do you mean by that? Where's the friction there? What 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 uh, what are you uncomfortable with? Look, I, I think I, I think that um, I, I think that the the goals of healthcare are to serve people. Um, I, I think that uh, that is oftentimes best left to the clinicians, to the physicians, to the therapists that are in the trenches every day and that really understand the needs of the patients they serve. And I think uh, I don't always equate time to quality, um, and uh, more is not better, less is not better, better is better. And I, I think that the financial incentive associated with taking money can sometimes create a different uh, a different influence a different incentive and i think that has some limitations and needs to be uh needs to be uh, included in the calculus and i just see uh, in healthcare particularly with pt and in, in gastroenterology is in the first inning of this um, and, and I can see where it could be just a negative influence on the decisions made if it isn't if it isn't checked or if it isn't uh, known and always in the forefront of your mind. Yeah, well said, well said. So now you decide to leave results and uh, you look for something new. So what's uh, what's the new thing you find and, and what do you do now? Yeah, so. Um, I moved to the outskirts of Boulder, Colorado with the family, and um, I had a great opportunity to take a regional VP of operations role with uh, Concentra, um, and it was fun. I have to tell you, I spent about uh, two and a half years with Concentra, <clears throat> and Concentra is a big, big corporation. I found it extraordinarily interesting to uh, learn more about that, that business, Concentra, they primarily operate occupational health uh, and urgent care facilities. And I ran their operations for what's called the Mountain Region and uh, had, had a blast. It was fun. Um, I really got a little fatigued from the travel and uh, that type of thing. And, and during that 
uh, period in in my career. This opportunity came up with a private gastroenterology practice whose uh, headquarters was right outside uh, of my home and my community. Um, it was a founder uh, founder mentality practice. They had about um, uh, 13, 12, 13 docs when I came on board. And it was an opportunity for me to learn from the founder. Um, spent about uh, eight months with the founder. He introduced me to the business of gastroenterology. He introduced me to our strategic partners. Um, and I had the opportunity to spend that, that six to eight months understanding how this practice evolved to where it is today. Um, and at the end of that, it was kind of a, a dress rehearsal for the CEO role and uh, made that, tra that transition in the spring. So how did you become aware or how did they become aware of you to put you in a position to consider being the CEO of this uh, specialty uh, physicians group? Well, so a friend of mine uh, pointed, actually showed me the advertisement and I, I reached out um, and that began the conversation. And it was actually quite a long long period of time that they were uh, vetting, vetting this position. And so I was in dialogue for a few months and then uh, at the end of it all was voted in by the board for this position. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, was, it was kind of typical. That's, that's great. So tell us a little bit about this uh, organization that you're leading now. So from my understanding, there's multiple uh, freestanding clinics and there's other medical offices. So uh, give us a little framework of what this practice looks like. Yeah, so we're a gastroenterology practice. We have uh, 14 doctors. Um, we have seven uh, PAs. We operate, um, we operate five endoscopy centers. Um, with our joint venture partners, and that's we have joint venture partners with two health systems in the greater Denver area. Um, and uh, those endoscopy centers are the locations where we do our procedures, which are primarily um, uh, colonoscopies and EGDs. What we stand for is uh, we want to eliminate and uh, prevent colorectal cancer. That's why we exist. And um, we, and uh, we have, uh, beyond those five endoscopy centers, uh, we have seven medical offices. So we'll, we'll treat uh, all kinds of patients with um, digestive diseases in those locations. And then when appropriate, they'll, uh, they'll come in for colonoscopies or EGDs, uppers, that type of thing. So how many employees do you have uh, total? We have about 98 employees. We have we operate our own path lab, which is integrated into the practice, um, and then we've got we do do procedures out of one other uh, uh, endoscopy center that we don't own. Um, it's one that is owned and operated by one of our JV partners, and it's kind of a uh, a new uh, entry point that we're exploring for um, potentially expanding this community. So that's uh, providing MSO services, management services organization for other clinics uh, uh, doing kind of their... So, so our practice, we have our own management service organization, MSO, and it supports our um, endoscopy centers and our medical offices. Um, but what we've done is we've brought in a new CFO and we are beginning to add some uh, some a bit more infrastructure because we believe what services this MSO is offering our medical practices uh, is very good. And so we think that we could bring our MSO to other smaller GI practices and probably even some collateral uh, uh, medical segments. So we have a, we own our own uh, MSO. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, getting back a little bit, talking to your mission, so colon rectal cancer is um, extremely high on the list of, uh, of uh, fatal uh, diseases. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. That uh, seems to be on the increase. Yeah, I mean, in, in recently it's been in, in the news with some high-profile um, folks that have 
um, unfortunately died from uh, colon cancer. But yeah, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in America. And what's interesting about it is that um, it's also has one of the highest survival rates when it's detected early. And right now, um, colonoscopy is that gold standard, not only for detecting um, adenomas or, or uh, precancerous polyps, but it also offers a therapeutic benefit because when you do a colonoscopy, you can remove those adenomas or those polyps that are precancerous. And so uh, uh, that's, that's kind of what, what we're trying to do and trying to uh, move the needle on here in the front range. And then part of your job also, I would uh, uh, imagine, is to negotiate with some of those hospital systems you have contracts with and, and working out the, the financial pieces of that. Uh, can't be easy yeah. and it must be challenging at times. It is. It, it's, uh, it, it's very competitive here in Colorado, and I think it's very competitive in many other states with, with gastroenterology, and, um, and there's payment pressures throughout the United States, um, and colonoscopy is one of those because, you know, the payers want to be able to offer colonoscopies to the population they're managing and they want to do it in an economically viable way. So we are constantly negotiating what our rates are for those procedures. Um, and uh, I think we're unique because uh, we're pretty much localized to Denver Metro and we don't run our endoscopy centers uh, and get get the benefits of leveraging our network of endoscopy centers across the larger number of states. Um, but you're 100% right. We, we have to be smart with how we negotiate those, uh, those procedures and our facility services, et cetera. Well, it kind of sounds like you've uh, found a, a, a position you really enjoy and are really enthusiastic about. But what's your biggest challenge every day when you get out of bed in the morning? Uh, what's your biggest challenge in your current role? Well, right now, it's the predictability of uh, the impact of COVID-19 and the impact that had uh, on us this past spring, but also the big question mark about how is that going to impact our budgets, our, our staffing needs, our, um, our, our future visits. So that's our biggest challenge right now. <laughs> And it's consuming, it's all consuming, as you could imagine. So speaking about COVID-19, now your physicians wouldn't necessarily be physicians that would deal with COVID-infected patients. So how did that affect your practice? Uh, did, it, uh, did people just uh, um, stop doing, uh, you know, what, what normally you would do? And was there a big uh, uh, blip in the revenues and the, the business side of things? Or, or did it keep going strong? Well, so our doctors take GI call at um, at four hospitals here in the in the front range, and some of those are emergent cases, whether they're GI bleeds or uh, life threatening impactions and the like. So they definitely continued to put themselves at risk with with uh, uh, by going into the the hospitals and managing these patients on emergent cases. Um, but in terms of our big big picture, I'll tell you, uh, you know, uh, I, I've gone through uh, uh, challenging times in my career. There was the flood of 20, 2010 in Nashville uh, that impacted many, many of our colleagues. Um, I've gone through, uh, uh, you know, challenges operationally with tornadoes devastating communities. But this particular incident was was the most challenging in my career um, and I'll give you an example we uh, I can't, it was some, late March on a Sunday we we had to call an emergency uh, board meeting with one of our JV uh, hospital JV partners and had to make the decision um, to eliminate elective procedures at our endoscopy centers one, to prevent the spread, two, to be in compliant with one of the state um, uh, state rules, uh, and then three, to have that ASC, that Ambulatory Surgery Center resource available 
for our joint venture partners. Not only the physical bricks and mortar of the ASC, but also our supplies. And so the decision was made that Sunday night that we were shutting down our operations, the bread and butter of the operations. And within three days, we completely shut down all of our cases in, in, our, in our endoscopy centers. And that is, that's essentially taking your revenues to zero uh, in three days. <clears throat> and subsequent to that, you know, we had to furlough. We furloughed 80, 87% of our staff. And these decisions are being made uh, with, uh, you know, with hours notice and um, you're thinking through the, the culture you're trying to build and um, you've got the responsibility of the practice on your shoulders, but, and so it's it just no win scenario. And so that's what we did. We had to furlough 87% of our staff and shut down our endoscopy centers and we were in a holding pattern. That's, that's, that's crazy. So now that, uh, you know, we're not out of COVID-19 by any means yet, uh, but, but what do you think you've learned through this process as a leader? What, uh, what lessons did you learn from going through that? Uh, that yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, um, the thing that you learn as a leader with time is how to think fast and think slow. And, uh, thinking fast is your gut instincts. Thinking slow is taking that and distilling it down to, uh, is this the right decision? What are the other consequences to those decisions? Is there another option? And I can only tell you that that's become more clear to me. Um, I think I've always kind of known, knew that, um, but this reinforced it. Um, I also think that it helps you put into perspective that the decisions you make impact people and people's lives every day, their livelihoods. And to me, that just reinforces the, the honor it is to be in such a position like this. Um, as hard as it is, it's still an honor. Yeah. So it's uh, we're recording this around November uh, 1st. Uh, 2020, and uh, have you been able to bring back those people that you put on furlough? Have you built it back up, or where are you at currently? Yeah, I have to tell you, I'm really proud of my team. I'm really proud of our doctors. Um, we we are above a hundred. We are above where we left off. So if we so we're at about a hundred and five percent of our staffing. Part of that is that we had to build redundancies in some of our key uh, positions, so we've hired more. Um, we do have uh, more safety and infection control protocols that requires a bit more staff. Um, we do have to do uh, pre-procedure COVID testing, which is, is kind of a coordination of getting your patients to test 72 hours before their appointment so that they can do the procedure and know that they're not shedding virus. So, uh, but, but we're also back to about 98 to 101% of our procedure volumes. And so we've rallied and that's, that's been extraordinary to see from, from my chair. Yeah, that's good for you. Good for you. So I, I've been dying to ask this question, and so I'm going to probably run into some stereotypes here, so uh, you, can, uh, you can say what you want to say about that. But here's what I'm thinking. So, you know, MDs are very independent, um, used to kind of making unilateral decisions, and are not usually short on egos, especially specialists that, like you're <laughs> dealing with. And it can't be easy getting, uh, getting them to work as a team for the good of the whole, good of the business. So... Uh, how is that? How is that working with MDs in this situation? That's a great question. And you're, I mean, look, uh, which, I'd say one of the contrasts here then with Concentra and with uh, results physiotherapy is that these docs, you know, are all, uh, the, my board of directors are all the owners of the practice. They are their owners of the practice. Um most of them have a significant personal investment uh, in the practice. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, it's like a family. 
different dynamics, different risk tolerances, um, different experiences, diff different uh, uh, cultures, um, but they all want to succeed and they all want this practice to grow and they all care um, uh, about their reputations and they care about uh, the people who, who help them do what they do every day. And so you're right, while, while those things exist, um, I can tell you that from, from my experience here, gastroenterologists um, have been really fun to work with. And they do have different ideas and it is a large board of directors that we have to manage, um, but they wanna win and they want to grow and they want to uh, treat and, and manage their patients to the highest level they can. So when you- So it's been good. Yeah. So when you came on this uh, into this position, did they look at you as a business person? Did they look at you as a fellow healthcare worker? Uh, what was their perspective, and and uh, has that changed since you took took on the position till now? I think both. I think that part of what differentiated me with this group is that um, that I was a healthcare professional. I knew what it was like to manage a very busy list um, and manage the emotional side of patients that were in pain and um, and um, in their cases are worried about a procedure or worried about a potential polyp that looked unusual. But at the same time, I still was managing um, patients, patient needs, compliance, documentation, defensible documentation, billings, all of it. So I had that perspective, and I do think that they saw that and found that to be a, a positive. Uh, I think uh, they also saw my background in private equity and uh, working for a big corporation uh, like Concentra, uh, also uh, very positive. Uh, and so, yeah. That's great. And as the CEO now, do you get any exposure to the difference that these uh, these physicians make in people's lives? Are you able to see and feel the stories that, um, you know, obviously they're not all in perfectly, but I'm sure you help a lot of people. I do. And, and, and one of the things, I mean, I think every one of our colleagues, they're, they're, first, there are no unimportant positions. Everyone helps us to serve those patients. Um, but a lot of times, each of these little, uh, these endoscopy centers and these offices are in their own bubble and their heads are down and they're managing patients and they're managing schedules and documentation. We have to be able to pull those stories and celebrate the wins and, and remind everybody that what they do is noble. And, um, and so, I am aware as the CEO, I do get, get those notes, and but my job is to also make sure that every single one of the people within this organization celebrate in those, in those wins. And, uh, and so, yes, uh, I, I am aware of those wins, and I want everybody on our team to be aware of those wins. And uh, it's interesting. I think you probably have a rare perspective in the sense that you've worked with both uh, physical therapists and uh, physicians in in uh, similar type of business structures in a sense, but how how are they different? How to um, just uh, again generally speaking, uh, how how is it managing PTs different from managing MDs? Um, I, I'd say the biggest difference from my perspective when I was with Results, the majority of our therapists were employed. They were uh, they were treated well, and they had. Um, significant incentives at stake, uh, but they weren't owners uh, of the practice. In in G, with GI of the Rockies, um, nearly all the docs are, are partners or on the, or will be partners with significant investments, and so they, there's a different level of engagement there. And, and but I'll tell you what, our PTs were so engaged that they wanted to be great, and uh, so it's. It's not a question of professional engagement, or I don't say that, that the docs who own the practice treat their patients better or invest more time and bleed into the into the practice more than what I experienced on the PT side. It's just that they're much more in tune with um, the, the P and Ls and the budgets and that type of thing. 
um, uh, it, it, both are very similar. I mean, both go to school for quite a long time uh, and are very passionate about the, their approach. Um, so uh, it's not it's not as different as you'd think, Steve. It's interesting. Yeah. And what's the viewpoint of those uh, when you're sitting in the boardroom with these physicians that have ownership in, uh, in, a, in a private practice, so to speak, in healthcare, when discussion goes to, you know, the Medicare for all or uni- universal care that uh, is yeah. being talked a lot about? What uh, Are they afraid of it? Uh, do they think they can work within that system? What, what What's the talk about? It's interesting. So we've got, we've got some senior guys and we've got some junior guys. Um, I'm in a very purple state in, right outside of a very blue city, Boulder. Um, and so uh, there are differing views. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I can, uh, there's, you know, I, the only thing I can tell you is that there are differing political views there. Um, but I don't think that's probably the, the Medicare for all and, and unified payer. That's probably not in our SWOT analysis, like you may think. Um, there's some other disruptors coming into the GI uh, GI field that I think are, are more of, of an anxiety point than Medicare for all. Um, but yeah, we don't get into too many heated family debates about the, the politics of, uh, of that. Um, there, there's a couple of corridor conversations here periodically that I'd hear, but not at the board, not at the boardroom. Yeah, and so as the CEO of a of a company that that you know deals with uh, strategic plan and visionary uh, ideas, um, what what do you think? I mean, do you think you need to have more of those conversations? Do you think that you need to plan for something that could change in the in the future, or uh, do you just keep doing what you're doing, and do it well? Well, I think I think any I think we can learn from experience whether it was physician uh, you know uh, physician owned practices and the downward pressures on on the ninety seven thousand series codes and with PT that um, change happens slowly until it's here right so I think we need to keep our nose uh, in the winds of of political of, of, of payment policy um, but. Uh, my view is that we need to make ourselves extraordinarily valuable to the communities we serve. I think we need to make ourselves extraordinarily uh, valuable to our JV partners, and we need to be and we need to make ourselves extraordinarily valuable to our payers. And as long as we have that dialogue, um, and we continue to evolve with our value proposition in, in those contexts, we'll be at the table. And so that's what that's what we're focusing on. Yeah, makes sense. Now you're living uh, in Boulder or out right outside of Boulder, Colorado. Um, I I think you're uh, a mountain bike uh, enthusiast. Yeah. So uh, how often are you getting out there on that thing? Um, it's it's a uh, it's more like an obsession. So um, I try to ride as much as I can. But man, it's it sure is great. The Rockies, the blue sky. Colorado sun. So I ride probably, uh, you know, four days a week, but prefer to ride seven days a week. So, uh, but it's, it's wonderful. Love, love the West. Miss the South, miss the cooking, uh, but, uh, miss the music, but, um, but man, it's fits our lifestyle out here. That's great. So what's next, Jason? What's, uh, what's down the road? You just keep doing what you're doing and, uh, uh, keep building, or do you have other things on the horizon that you're looking forward to? Well, I've got three kids. I got a, uh, my oldest is 15. She's already driving with a permit, and um, she's a basketball player and a cross country uh, person. So I um, have loved watching her grow up and transition to the Colorado lifestyle. I've got uh, twins, boy, girl, twins that are, uh, 12 years old and very into soccer and, uh, everything outdoors. So I'm enjoying having the professional balance and the personal balance with them. Um, you know, what I'm focusing on is continuing to grow this practice and grow this team and, um, 
you know, but I'm a curious guy. I, I love, love to read and love to uh, explore. So who knows? But that's those are my two focuses. That's great. Well, usually, Jason, at this uh, time of the uh, interview, I always ask a common question to everyone. And the question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you can leave our listeners with today? Interesting. A pearl of wisdom. Uh, I think, you know, I think one of the things with leadership um, and in today's economy, I mean, if you open up a leadership requisition, you'll get a ton of quality candidates. I think what it comes down to me is that there's people who have a sense of gratitude, um, are, are compassionate, and then but prideful about their work product. And to me, if you've got quality candidates and you're vetting what kind of person to bring on your team, you got to bring someone that's going to bring, you know, a, a, a grit and someone with gratitude, compassion, and pride. I would take that candidate over the one that had uh, a bit more attractive CV or, or resume. And I think that's hard to find. But that's what that's probably my my pearl would be to find those people because they're gold. Yeah, that's great. Well, well said. Well, Jason, this has uh, been a real pleasure talking with you today. I mean, your journey is fascinating. I think that a lot of uh, uh, people can listen to this and, and probably envy that you uh, have a position like you have today, but uh, it certainly has come with a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication, a lot of sacrifice. So congratulations on your uh, position now, and it sounds like you got a good group to work with. And um, happy for you and, and just uh, wish you the best of luck in the future. So thanks for your time today. Thanks, Steve. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.